You have maybe seen the advertisement that's playing fairly frequently, at least on some of the shows that, that I watch that have commercials. And it starts out with a guy at a party, young guy, maybe 20-something or so, and an attractive woman smiles at him, and he turns to his friend and says, I'm never getting married. <laughs> and then in the next scene, he's buying an engagement ring. And then in the scene after that, he and now his wife are on an airplane, and there's a child crying in back, and then he said, we're never having kids. And in the scene after that, she's giving birth. Scene after that, the three of them are in this beautiful kind of uh, image of urban life in this loft with the high ceilings. And in back of them, they see skyscrapers. And he leans back in his chair and says, we're never moving to the suburbs. And the next scene, he's mowing his grass in the suburbs. Scene after that, he's looking out the road in front of this beautiful little house in the suburbs. And he sees a minivan go by and says, I'm never buying a minivan. And the scene after that, he's washing his minivan. Scene after that, he is scrubbing cartoon drawings, crayon drawings off of his wall that his beloved child put there and says to his wife as she passes by, we're never having another kid. And without missing a beat, she says, I'm pregnant. (laughs) And then in the final scene, all four of them now sitting on the couch and he says, I'm never letting go. And commercial. The resilience joke is on him. (laughs) That's why this commercial works. Except we don't see the next scene, and that's important. He's going to have to let go, right? Those of you who are parents, he's going to have to let go. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you. Your kids are only, what, 22 and 18, right? (laughs) Sorry to let the cat out of the bag there. (laughs) You see, if his kids are going to grow up, right? And get to experience all those, I will never. And then something happens. And then he does. And they do. That's where the growth, that's where the resilience, that's where the thriving comes in. So, at the end of this message series, called Bouncing Back, about resilience. One of the things I want to focus on today is the language we use to describe our experience forms our experience. It can open us up, or it can limit and shut us down. Now, as I said, the resiliency joke is on that guy in the commercial, because for every never, there's a but. (laughs) And the but actually turns out to be pretty good. As uh, the great teacher Shunryu Suzuki says when he was asked to describe simply, what's your Zen tradition about? Three simple words, not always so, (laughs) not always so. This is why words like never and only and always and all, these are not helpful words. (laughs) These are pretty unskillful words, actually. These are words that can end up being really tyrannical. Between us and also within us. Because the cost of words like never and only and all and always is like what we see in the commercial. It's not always so. Life is always giving us something new. And if we stick, 
if we harden into that fixed viewpoint of never or only or always or all, we're going to miss the learning and we're going to miss the growth. We're going to miss the opportunity to bounce back from that thing that life has given us that we didn't think we could accept. And yet it's part of our lives. This is really important, especially when we're experiencing conflict with other people. Uh, so in the uh, eight-week basic mindfulness course that I teach here at Wellspring, small group that we have, that I do at least once a year, about week five or week six, it's one of the uh, sessions that we have a lot of fun with, we do a session on mindful communication. And uh, where the curriculum comes from is actually called nonviolent communication. And I can be a pretty good actor when I want to be. And so we do a little mindful role play. And I play the role of the irate person in the office who, Josie, would have given you a lot to work with in terms of feeling your own self-worth in that moment. And something hasn't come to me on time. And just I hype it up as big as I can. And I accuse the person of all and always, and this is what you do, and all that big global language. And there's no space for the other person to move or grow or even answer me because I am so fixed in my mindset. Notice if you ever say that to someone else. I'm sure you have. I know I have. We say it especially when we're frustrated with the people closest to us. You always do X. You never do why. And by the way, all they have to say is the one time where they've done that and argument over, they've won. (laughs) It's not based in what's actually happening. And by the way, we can flip it around to the other side when I play the role of the person who thinks they can never do anything right. They're always screwing up. And that separates us from other people in just the same way. So this nonviolent communication means moving beyond this always All, only, never, tyrannical and separating and isolating ways of relating to ourselves and other people. And of course, there's a better way that makes life a lot less impossible. I'm going to show you something in just a moment. And it goes by the name um, on the Internet. I've been seeing this for about like every two to three months. It pops up in my feet again. It's called Baby Dharma Talk. (laughs) It's about how we work with our emotions. Baby Dharma Talk comes from a guy named Ethan Nickturn, who is the leader of uh, Shambhala, which is a Tibetan form of Buddhism in New York City. He leads something called the Interdependence Project. And a friend of his, someone he knows, who's a meditation teacher and well and also a psychotherapist, had given birth not too long ago. And she's holding this little baby, her little baby, and little baby gets a little fussy. And then starts to get a little happy, starts to get a little fussy, and you'll see what she does. Go ahead. And then they go away, and then they come back, and then they go away, and then they come back. I recently heard a wonderful little word. I learned a new word as part of my uh, graduate studies, emo-diversity. Love that word, emo diversity, and no, it's not a more multicultural version of angry, self-pitying punk rock by normally a bunch of sad sack white guys. No, emo diversity is exactly what we heard in that baby Dharma talk. 
life has a lot of emotional extremes. And actually, rather than focusing on being happy all the time, which is the easiest way to make us kind of miserable, providing a wide space and a wide latitude in the heart for a variety of different feelings, that actually is absolutely related to our ability to get through this life and flourish and to be okay. So emo diversity, remember it. And especially if you can, remember it next time you have one of those feelings you don't like. <laughs> next time you have one of those feelings of shame or, or anger or leftover from two minutes ago or two years ago or 20 years ago and those feelings arise and you start to say to yourself, this shouldn't be here. Maybe you've a little bit more space for that emo diversity. And maybe you'll see, just like in the baby Dharma talk, that it doesn't last forever. And something else takes its place. This is some of the work we're doing in a small group I'm leading right now about working with afflictive emotions, mindfully. And one of the real interesting things we've seen already, and it's just like halfway through this four-week group, is when we give ourselves space to really pay attention to whatever is coming up, when we don't deny our anger or deny or sadness, or deny experiences of embarrassment or shame, that it is truly one of the cleanest, clearest ways to allow us to bounce back in this life and to be more resilient. There is a poem, I think it's Sam Keen, I actually couldn't find it for today, so you know, one of you will probably find it and send it to me later today, because that's the way this whole knowledge thing together in community works. He says something like in this poem, our biggest problems arise from never allowing anything to be itself. <laughs> Ourselves or each other. Just to allow sadness to be sadness or allow anger to be anger or allow joy to be joy or allow contentment to be contentment. We experience these things, all of us. And if we're open and allow space within us, We'll see that our emotional lives and our hearts are always moving and have space for a lot more than we might have thought. Spiritually, this tradition, this progressive spiritual tradition, this Unitarian Universalism is overabundant, overstuffed in the best way with all kind of invitations to remind us that life is always moving. We have language around this movement in our values and beliefs here at Wellsprings. We talk about the burning bush blazing everywhere. Not once, not iconically back then, but here and now. We talk about the chrysalis. About the fact that if we can get in touch with those moments of transformation within us, we will see that life is giving us multiple opportunities over and over again to grow. I would say that this is, for me, one of the most powerful things of belonging to this tradition is that it is a resiliency-based way of looking at life, of not freezing ourselves into an image of what we think life should be, but God as verb rather than as noun, spirit as breath. Try moving without breathing and try breathing without moving. Connection as soul, life, as process. This influences our capacity to bounce back. Sometimes we're in fight 
flight, fear, frozenness. We forget our capacity to move. And we experience more pain than we need to. One of my favorite stories about bouncing back right now is a show called The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. You know that? It's from Tina Fey. She's a genius. Uh, And it starts with one of the least funny um, beginnings to a series you could possibly think of, which is a young woman who has been held in an underground bunker with several other young women against their will for well over a decade by basically an insane religious zealot. Not really the beginning of comedy that we would normally think. And yet, the show never makes fun of them, never makes fun of Kimmy. She decides that she's going to leave her small Ohio town and move to New York City and have a life of adventure. And she while constantly experiencing things that are going wrong, has this profound sense that she is still learning and growing. And I'm going to ask you to show that slide right now because you'll see how they do this with the title of each of these series. Look how each of those episodes are written. Kimmy goes roller skating, exclamation point. Kimmy goes on a play date, exclamation point. Kimmy goes to a play. Kimmy kidnaps Gretchen. I haven't seen that one yet. Kimmy gives up. Kimmy drives a car. Kimmy walks into a bar. Verb, 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 verb. Remembering the movement in this life beyond our fixed view of ourselves. That's what makes this show really so lovely and so funny is Kimmy is completely unafraid to make mistakes. What would, you know, life be like for us if we just, I mean, you know, don't have to feel good about it, but just accepted that the mistakes are going to come and they're going to go and this is who we are. One of the reasons I also love this show is there is a profound sense of warmth And love for its imperfect characters. Because ultimately that's my experience of what makes all this movement possible. What animates us. What gives us the permission to keep on moving and keep on growing. There's a UCC minister named Sandra Summers who uh, teaches and works in a congregation in New England. And she works in uh, spiritual education and formation for kids. And she's from a tradition like ours. They're kind of our closest Christian cousins, kind of still within the uh, fold of Christian denominationalism. And like us, you know, they don't they, they can treat uh, scripture as something holy, but not something literal. And so she's trying to uh, encourage the kids to understand what are these uh, Jesus stories who stands at the center of the faith mean to them? And particularly, what do these Jesus healing stories mean to them? And so she's teaching once with a bunch of seven and eight-year-olds about Jesus healing a man who was paralyzed. And she asks, what do you think this story means for you? And the seven-year-old raises her hand immediately and says, this is just like the movie Frozen. (laughs) And the uh, Sandra reflects in this piece that she's writing that this was what was like those of your parents can remember this like two three years ago when everything was about frozen all the freaking time it was frozen everything maybe it still is for some of you maybe you're frozen at the age of frozen i don't know 
And Sandra says, okay, she's really enthusiastic. Let's see how this plays out. Well, Anna was frozen just like the man's body was frozen. And Elsa's love unfroze Anna, just like Jesus' love unfroze the man. So, if we love people, less people will be frozen. Literal heart melt, right? (laughs) Let me say that last thing again. This is where it all comes from. This is what makes the movement possible. If we love people, less people will be frozen. That includes all of us. If we can cultivate that love for ourselves and other people. After I read this about a week ago, I thought, when did I first learn that message? And actually, when I was seven or eight. Now, for those of you who know me, it's not going to be a surprise to hear that I was an anxious kid. And then I became an anxious teen, and then I became an anxious adult, and now at middle age, actually, I can say I'm a less anxious 46, almost 47-year-old person. And by the way, that's wonderful, because that's the resiliency frame that says, you know what, we're all completely freaking imperfect, and we're all working with our stuff. And this idea that we have to achieve this image actually becomes an idol that keeps us from growing. So to be a less anxious 46, almost 47-year-old person, that's growth and that's great. And when I was at the first day of second grade and I loved first grade so much and I loved my teacher so much that I found myself at midday in the principal's office saying, I'm not going back to that class and bursting out crying and I became an immovable object and they almost had to call my parents at work and I said, no, I'm not going it was beset. I was scared. I was an anxious kid. And nothing they said could reason me out of it. What I remember is that it was someone. It may have actually been my first grade teacher who I admired and loved so much. But I can't remember who it was. Came over and just did this. I was here sitting down, sniffling and crying. And they came and they just sat next to me. They didn't say a word. They just sat next to me. I remember looking up at them, smiled. They just sat next to me and kept on sitting. Kept on sitting. And eventually I stopped crying. And eventually I did complete the second grade. (laughs) (laughs) That experience... That experience, wordlessly, was the first one I ever had in which someone told me, and it's so important, I think it's important so much when we tell this to each other, I'll stay right here with you until you're ready to move. I will stay right here with you until you're ready to move. As adults, we forget this all the time. We think the right reason or the right method or the exact right word will be the lever. I mean, there's all these books, many of them complete and utter nonsense about the right levers to push within us. But there is no substitute for the pureness and the goodness of our loving presence with each other. I will sit here with you until you are ready to move.
This has nothing to do with agreeing with what someone else is going through. It has nothing to do with making sense of it. It has nothing to do with codependency. It has everything to do with what we were working on this past week in that small group that I talked about. We started to focus on what is it like to turn with love towards those parts of ourselves that we think are completely unlovable or that we don't like. That's where bouncing back begins. When we can love even the unlovable parts. And by the way, this is the secret, if it's not really a secret at all, actually, of forgiveness. And forgiveness is, Lee and I were talking about this just recently, it's something we named as so important to our working relationship that we put it in our six-month-into-co-ministry report. <laughs> it keeps us moving in our professional relationship with each other. This capacity to turn towards ourselves when we see those things we don't like and to pay attention. And it has absolutely nothing to do with all hearts and flowers or thinking that you love yourself or feeling that you love yourself even. It's actually a lot of what Josie was talking about this morning. Even in our worst moments, we have worth, we have dignity, and we deserve to be paid attention to. This is the kind of love that exists beyond fragility. You know, the kind of fragility that says, oh my God, I'm feeling this emotion. I can't feel it. It's impossible. I can't do it. But it's also beyond the kind of fragility that exists as hard-heartedness. Where because I don't like it, I'm just going to move it out of my consciousness and say feelings don't matter. Love right-sizes our responses to our difficult feelings and allows space. It releases us into a deeper resilience. It allows us to remember how connected we are. Years ago, I knew someone who had a near-death experience with all the bells and the whistles that you hear about, (laughs) all the moving towards the bright light and the sense of peace and unity. And then they came back to life and had an absolutely grueling, miserable sense of it for years afterward as they healed. And by the time I got to know this person, they were pretty much the most contented person I knew. They still had difficulties. They still had the after-effects of what was and turned out to be a brain hemorrhage and an aneurysm. Life wasn't easy. And this person spread love around them like seed. And this was a time in my life in which I did not have a very easy time doing that. And so I asked them, what's your secret or what are you on? (laughs) And Their answer had nothing to do with the vision of the white life and the afterlife, whether or not you think that's just something that the brain does or whether you think that actually is an entryway into a different portal of being. No. What that person said is now. Now what when I tell people I love them, which I do often and every chance I get, I really mean it. It is love that moves in the movement, that makes the movement possible, that says there is a wholeness so loving, so real, so true, so fundamentally our nature, that any twists, any turns, any stirs, stirred up, stirring the heart, 
all the movement can be from love and through love and to love. Today, may you get in touch with the movement that is already your life and your lo- love your life even more. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Recognizing right now there is movement. If there was not, there would not be life. Right now there is the movement of each breath. The Spirit reaching us exactly as we are, who we are, doing nothing to deserve it other than being alive. And that just as naturally we give back. There is the movement of our beating hearts. All of us alike in this way. There is the movement right now of love. If we can be open to it. If we can recognize that our lives can be channels for it. May we all make wide the pathways of love in our lives today. Recognize that many of us are struggling. And that's part of life too. And that it's okay. May we sit with ourselves, may we sit with each other in this larger movement of love. And invite us into that most profound resiliency, that reconnection and reunion with life. Amen.